All right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to our second session on the Return of the King. Uh, I am very excited for today's session, and I am filled with hope and confidence as I have almost twice as many slides to get through as I didn't get through last time. So um, that's going to be awesome. Um, uh, I definitely, you know, this is one of the sections I've really been looking forward to. Also, it's hard because I... Uh, I, I know we're not going. We're barely going to be able to scratch the surface of things that we could talk about in this section. Um, you know, there's. A, you know, Ed was kind of teasing me before, saying for you know for this class I should just read the passages aloud. Just just do nothing but read the passages aloud. <clears throat> and I can totally uh, sympathize with that point of view, as it's really kind of hard to improve on them. Um, but anyway, we'll we'll see what we can do. Brandon uh, Lovesey is hoping for a, a U catastrophe uh, to get us through our slides tonight, uh, and I think it, we may need that actually, Brandon. So <clears throat> we'll see if a wind from the sea or perhaps a flight of eagles uh, comes to our assistance. Um, so let's. Yana asks, did I manage to keep from crying today? No, no, I didn't. I I will say if I read the passage several times in one day. You, I don't necessarily cry every time, but I always cry the first time. Um, uh, Alyssa, who um, very uh, helpfully uh, puts uh, types up the PowerPoints for me, um, was teasing me because she noticed that I broke up the passage that always makes me cry on two different slides with several slides in between uh, to try to give me a uh, to try to give me a fighting chance. But uh, let's see, let's see. Okay. Um, I wanted to begin today's class with a little flashback uh, to the Two Towers class. I don't know if you guys noticed it. I know many of you did the Two Towers class with me a couple months ago. Um, did you notice, uh, were you thinking like I was uh, about our Two Towers discussions when this scene rolled around with Pippin and Baragon? The Lord's errands are urgent and should not be hindered by me, said Baragon. But tell me quickly, if you may, what goes forward? Whither has my Lord gone? I have just come on duty, but I heard that he passed towards the closed door, and men were bearing far and men were bearing Faramir before him. Yes, said Pippin, to the silent street. Baragon bowed his head to hide his tears. They said that he was dying, he sighed, and now he is dead. No, said Pippin, not yet, and even now his death might be prevented, I think. But the lord of the city, Baragon, has fallen before his city is taken. He is fey and dangerous. Quickly he told of Denethor's strange words and deeds. I must find Gandalf at once. Then you must go down to the battle. I know, the lord has given me leave, but Baragon, if you can, do something to stop any dreadful thing happening. The lord does not permit those who wear the black and silver to leave their post for any cause save at his own command. Well, you must choose between orders and the life of Faramir, said Pippin. And as for orders, I think you have a madman to deal with, not a lord. I must run. I will return if I can. Okay. Um, now, here's my question. Uh, for those of you, who, especially for those of you who are in the Two Towers class, though of course anybody can answer it, does Baragon make the right call here? Again, we don't get it here, right? When we don't see him, we'll come back to this. We'll look at this a little bit more later, of course, when we actually see Baragon acting on his choice. What we get here is Pippin confronting him with a choice and then running away, right? Um, and But we know what he's going to choose, right? He's going to choose to abandon his post. Did he make the right choice? And if so, 
why. Um, thinking back to the choices, we you know we, we spent a lot of time in the Two Towers class looking at Aragorn's choices, back in Chapter 1 looking at Frodo's choices, looking at Faramir's choices uh, in Ithilien, looking at Sam's choices, of course, at the end. Um, what does he make the right choice, and why does he make the right choice? One thing that I would say here is Pippin gives a kind of rationale, right? He says you must choose, and then he gives that, you know, sort of loaded rider at the end, right? But as for orders, I think you have a madman to deal with, not a lord, right? Pippin is saying it's up to you, but, uh, you know, he gives him a pretty strong nudge in the one direction, right? You know, if you're weighing on the one hand, you've got the life of Faramir, and you've got your orders on the other hand. Are you going to obey your orders and follow your, or are you going to rebel against your lord, defy his orders, for a good cause, does do the ends? You got we, we've got an ends and means question here, conceivably, right? How does that play out exactly? Now, Pippin seems to say, ah, you know, yeah, you've got orders in the life of Faramir, but pff, orders, come on, he's a madman, right? You can't take his orders seriously, so you're not doing anything wrong by disobeying them. At least that seems to be what Pippin is implying or inviting uh, Baragon to conclude. I'm not sure that Pippin is quite in the right there. I, I think he's kind of uh, uh, trying to to cut through this particular uh, this particular moral Gordian knot for Baragond in a way that I'm not sure is entirely appropriate. For instance, it's quite obvious that Aragorn later on does not think that way, right? When Aragorn when Aragorn finally sits in judgment on Baragond, as we'll see later on, he um, holds him culpable for disobeying his orders, right? I mean, of course, we know that he doesn't actually, you know, it it's, doesn't consider this a horrible thing, but he does not say, uh, never does it enter into it, well, you disobeyed orders, but those orders were being delivered by a madman at the time, so it's fine, right? That That's not, in fact, the argument or how the conversation goes later on. Um, Okay, so we've got, let's see, Tom is talking about, Tom Hillman is talking about the uh, uh, weighing the, the moral choice over the expedient one. Yes, but, but, but wait a second, but what about ends and means? You've got a good end, right, saving Faramir's life, but the means to defy orders, to, to uh, you know, to disobey your lord, that's not good, is it? Or is that okay? And how can we know? And how and how does that compare with what we? I mean, Faramir was in a position, right, where he had a standing, he had a standing order, and he chose to go against it. Now that's a different situation, right? He had the authority, you could say, to do what he did. At least he certainly has more authority, more authority than Baragond. Um, and when Faramir makes his sort of pronouncement about this, um, when he declares his intentions concerning the said Frodo, um, he couches it within the context of the authority that's given to him, subjecting it to the final arbitration of his father as steward. So Faramir is still operating within the authority structure that he operates within. Baragon doesn't have that choice, right? His question is simply flat disobedience of orders um, for a good reason or not. It's... it's um, it's tricky. I think this is a harder question than it might seem. It than it might seem at first. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
As Yana says, it's hard to argue with the results that Faramir would have died without him, um, but it doesn't seem that simple. I agree, it doesn't seem that simple. Um, yeah, Chris says, uh, making the seemingly wrong choice for good reasons often seems to turn out to be the right choice with Tolkien. Yes, though I do think that this decision is not exactly parallel. Again, think of the, some of the other, of another example that we were talking about in The Two Towers. Um, Aragorn's choice, not to follow Frodo, but instead to follow Merry and Pippin. Um, again, the choice that confronts him there, do what seems like the wise thing to do, right? I, I help the ring bearer, right? Okay, you know, to subordinate the good of everybody else, even their friends, to the greater good, which is the quest of the ring. Right, that that's even if you know Mary and Pippin are killed as a consequence, they have to do what's more important first. Right? Again, that seems entirely justifiable. But Aragorn says his heart speaks to him clearly. He can't abandon Mary and Pippin to torment and death. Um, that would be wrong. And so, not doing that for the sake of the greater good, not putting the ends, you know, this his the sense of the ends and how he thinks he can get he can best get to that end. Um, in front of, uh, in front of the 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 doing the obviously right thing, that is, it would obviously be wrong to let Mary and Pippin uh, die. But here's poor Baragond. It would obviously be wrong, right, to let Faramir be killed. Except, of course, I haven't even mentioned the other complexity here. Is that not only is he? It's not just a question of he's received standing orders. Um, but, uh, and he has to choose to defy those in order to achieve this good end, that is, saving Faramir's life. Even when he goes to save Faramir's life, he's going to be acting ex directly against his lord. So his action is not just one of disobedience, but of actual rebellion. He's going to have to actually take arms against his lord. This is a really big deal. I mean, I think it's, 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 it's one thing that's kind of easy for us, um, especially modern modern Americans, to look back um, at this and be like, oh, you know, abandoning your post, whatever, like, that doesn't seem like a big deal. Obviously, saving Faramir is more important. Well, yeah, but taking up, this is, I mean, he is functionally, and will later literally, be taking up arms against his, 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 his lord. That's a huge deal. Um, <laughs> Ed is asking, is so, so is Baragon the Edward Snowden of Gondor? I am so not going to touch that, Ed. <laughs> ends and means, ends and means. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Sharon Powell points out that staying at his post might serve... Uh, the good, or it might serve for nothing, saving Faramir is an immediate need. Um, yes, I mean, certainly one could parallel that with Aragorn's choice, and say, you know, that, like, basically his choice is to stand there knowing that Faramir is going to be killed. Um, and, you know, Pippin has just said, you know, do do something to stop any dreadful thing happening, you know, that that as far as he knows, and indeed it will turn out to be true, um, he is the only one that can stop Faramir from being killed. If he does not act, and it turns out to be true, if he had chosen not to act, Faramir would have been killed. Um, so is that like Aragorn saying, I can't, I can't abandon them uh, to torment and death? 
in the end, yeah, I think that you can say that. I think you can say that Baragon made the right choice here. But I just wanted to point that. I just wanted to point it out because this is something that I think is more complicated than it seems like at first. Um, and uh, you know, Carissa, I think, is right in pointing out that Pippin is operating by different rules. He's acting like a hobbit in this moment. Um, yeah, I mean, the, he, it's 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 much easier for Pippin to be like Lord, whatever, right? He's sworn an oath to serve uh, Denethor, but we've already seen that uh, he's not a very good servant uh, in lots of ways. He's certainly not like um, does not have the same mindset that the Gondorians have. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Um, yeah. Um, sorry, I'm just scanning through several of your uh, of your um, comments here. Um, Jean says it was a choice between bad options, but this is like Aemir allowing the three hunters to continue their search for the hobbits. Jean, that's a good parallel. I hadn't mentioned that one, but you're right. Um, in many ways, that one is more closely parallel because, as Aemir says, you know. If he lets them go, then his life may well be forfeit, right? So he, he says he's putting himself and perhaps his very life um, in the keeping of Aragorn's promise to come back and, and, you know, show, essentially validate the choice that Aragorn, that Aemir made, sorry. Um, so there, with Aemir, even though Aemir, of course, is going to become king as well, so you could say he's in kind of a parallel political position to Faramir, um, there is a very different... Um, status. Again, I'm thinking of the pronouncement of doom that Faramir makes, um, you know, sort of in the place of the steward and subject to the authority of the steward, or subject rather to the subsequent ratification by the steward in a year and a day. Um, and what Aemir does in saying, okay, you know, we, we have standing orders in a time of war, but I'm going to break that rule. And he duh, he is in fact imprisoned um, when he gets back. Now, we're told, of course, that he's chiefly imprisoned for threatening death to Wormtongue in Theoden's Hall. Um, so that's kind of a different issue. But still, I mean, he, he says at the time that he's, uh, you know, that his own life could be forfeit. Um, and Baragond is doing the same thing. So you can look at it as an act of self-sacrifice. Um, but, and, and I think for Baragond, it certainly is. Um, and that sort of puts it in it, in it, in a different place, but Baragon's relationship with Denethor, the fact that Denethor is personally involved in this, um, that that he, Baragon, has to act directly against Denethor, makes it, I think, much more, much more of a struggle, much more difficult. Um, another, um, another, uh, Parallel. Arthur is suggesting Hama, the door ward, uh, as a parallel. I like that Arthur, in that certainly Hama is a much more direct parallel to Baragond, as you know, in his position and uh, sort of relative political significance and whatnot. Um, the difference, though, there is that Hama is not faced with a dilemma. Uh, I mean, he he is in a sense, but basically he uses his own judgment within the scope. I mean, he has the power to do what he does. Um, he is the door ward. It is his. It is his job um, to keep people from from you know to to guard the door. Um, Wormtongue says that he has you know he has told Hama to deny 
the wizard his staff, and he says that that fool Hama has betrayed us. Hama doesn't betray them, though. I mean, that's that's not a true accusation. Um, he uses, as he Hama explicitly says, he uses his own judgment in a difficult matter, and his judgment ends up being justified, in fact, uh, by Gandalf and Gandalf's actions. Um, so. I think that that is an interesting uh, uh, connection, but I, I wouldn't put Baragond in exactly the same the same position. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Um, yeah. Jean asks if Denethor has abdicated his responsibilities as a good steward. Is the social contract between Denethor and Baragond broken? Well, that's exactly what Pippin is suggesting, right? Um, yeah, yeah. You want to obey your lord? I understand, but man, like if you'd seen him, you'd know all bets are off as far as the lord obeying is concerned right now. Um, you know, there. It's not that that's not a defensible position. But that's uh, not the traditional way that this kind of hierarchical society thinks. I mean, you're not generally encouraged to be like, well, my lord has issued an order, but is it a good order? You know, uh, do, do I, do, you know, should I really obey it? Um, that's tough. That's tough. Um, Tom Hillman points out that he disobeys, uh, Baragon disobeys out of love. Uh, I agree. Um, I think that that's uh, um, that that is an important thing in the end. Um, that he is not rebelling against his lord out of rebellion, out of pride. Um, it is a question clearly in Baragon's mind of a choice of loyalties, um, two different loyalties that are that are um, that are binding him. Um, one of which is to his lord and one of which is to Faramir. So you could say it's like he's choosing between Denethor and Faramir, but I certainly don't think Baragon would think about him in that way. Another factor that I would suggest um, is, um, yes, the consequences of abandoning your post during a battle can be severe. Um, so you don't want to underestimate that. Um, but at the same time, I don't know. His he seems to he is willing to take upon himself the consequences and the opprobrium of having abandoned his post. If he is going to be called a traitor, if he is going to be um, you know publicly shamed as a consequence of this, he's willing to suffer that for the sake of Faramir. Um, and if you sort of sort of weigh in the balance. From Baragon's point of view, um, what what is to be gained? What are the what are the the goods that underlie? Like for what good causes does one f obey the order under those circumstances compared to the things that are the causes that are drawing him towards um, towards Faramir? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it's interesting. Of course, another comparison, and I'm, uh, um, I'm, and Luke, I know that social contract theory didn't exist in the time uh, in the time of stewards. Like, I, I, but I do think it's an interesting way of thinking about it. I think it's a, uh, yeah, I, I, I realize that it's a an anachronistic application of that uh, of that phrase. But still, the I mean, again, 
I would actually I would be fine with that as a very loose kind of para, kind of paraphrase of Pippin's comment there. Um, I think that that's really kind of what Pippin was getting at in a sense. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, good. Um, Elizabeth says, interestingly, it's not so much um, what will be gained by obeying, but what will be lost by staying at his post. Yeah, that's clearly the choice that he makes, right? Um, or what will be lost by, by, uh, by leaving, I mean, again, his life, his honor, his position, yeah, he's forfeiting potentially all of those things. Um, could there be consequences for more than himself? I mean, yeah. Could could it turn out that because he left his post, the enemy broke through and the city fell? That's possible. Remember, that's exactly the move that Denethor makes to Faramir. Um, uh, you know, when Faramir says, so be it, uh, to, you know, Denethor, when Denethor says that he could pay for his life for his um, for his choice, and, and Denethor says caustically to Faramir, so be it, but not by your life only, Lord Faramir, but by the life of your father and, and the city. That is, don't just think of yourself. Again, that's just like Baragant, right? Um, Baragant, apparently, uh, not... Uh, uh, has has learned his lessons well from Faramir. But again, Faramir believed that that was worth it. Baragon believes it's worth it too. Well, I'm off to a great start as far as getting through all my slides, no question. Let me go on to our next choice here. And I think it's interesting to look at this passage uh, in, the, in, the, in the context of this kind of question. After a while, the king led his men away somewhat eastward to come between the fires and the siege and the outer fields. Still they were unchallenged, and still Theoden gave no signal. At last he halted once again. The city was now nearer. A smell of burning was in the air, and a very shadow of death. The horses were uneasy. But the king sat upon Snowmane, motionless, gazing upon the agony of Minas Tirith, as if stricken, sudden, as if stricken suddenly by anguish or by dread. He seemed to shrink down, cowed by age. Mary himself felt as if a great weight of horror and doubt had settled on him. His heart beat slowly. Time seemed poised in uncertainty. They were too late. Too late was worse than never. Perhaps Theoden would quail, bow his old head, turn, slink away to hide in the hills. Then suddenly Mary felt it at last, beyond doubt, a change. Wind was in his face. Light was glimmering. Far, far away in the south, the clouds could be dimly seen as remote gray shapes, rolling up, drifting. Morning lay beyond them. But at that same moment there was a flash, as if lightning had sprung from the earth beneath the city. For a second, for a searing second, it stood dazzling far off in the black and white, its topmost tower like a glittering needle, and then as the darkness closed again there came rolling over the fields a great boom. At that sound the bent shape of the king sprang suddenly erect. Tall and proud he seemed again, and rising in his stirrups he cried in a loud voice, more clear than any there had ever heard a mortal man achieve before. Arise, arise, riders of Theoden! Fell deeds awake, fire and slaughter! Spear shall be shaken, shield be splintered! A sword day, a red day, ere the sun rises! Ride now, ride now, ride to Gondor! Okay, now, several things that we see here. Yes, Yana, that boom is the gate breaking, uh, to, so that we get, we get the, uh, 
the the timing thing uh, going right here. Um, okay. One thing that I think that we can see here, and I think especially that image that we get of him seeming to shrink down cowed by age, we get a little like recapitulation of the healing of Theoden here. And I think that this has a really important effect on our understanding of that previous passage. I always think of this moment um, when talking about that moment back in the Two Towers. Um, it's easy to look at that moment and say, hey, Gandalf saved him, right? And it's true, Gandalf does save him. But, first of all, what he saves him from, I think we can see a little bit more clearly here. Remember, Gandalf's healing consists primarily of saying, hey, um, why don't you come outside into the sun and look around? And Theoden's like, it's not so dark, actually. I mean, it's, it's quite undramatic, uh, in a sense. Um, that he, you know, there's no conflict, there's no, there's no, um, no overt magic spell that is cast by Gandalf. Um, Gandalf, uh, and Gandalf himself doesn't really take a lot of credit for that. He talks to him, right? He shows him that things are, you know, he, he has had words whispered, words of despair whispered to him. Um, and we get, again, in miniature, in sort of this compressed form, and Mary feels it too, right? Mary has this, not, not the sudden empathy for how Theoden was, Mary doesn't really know anything about that, but he feels the same way that he sees Theoden feeling, shrinking down, being cowed. Mary himself feels cowed, a great weight of horror and doubt that settles on him. That His heart beating slowly has this physical effect on him, right? And these thoughts start running in his mind, they were too late. Too late was worse than never. And then he's looking at, th perhaps Theoden would quail, bow his old head, turn, slink away to hide in the hills. What is Theoden going to choose? And that this is where I feel this passage has a big impact on my own understanding of Theoden's healing back before. Yeah, Gandalf saved him, but it was his choice that really had a lot to do with it. Um, he himself, in, you know, in a sense, deserves a lot of credit for his healing. Um, because if he had not responded, if he had not reacted uh, as he did to the hope and encouragement, the truth that Gandalf brought, you know, the light that Gandalf shone uh, into the room uh, and into Theoden's mind at that point, then he wouldn't have changed. Um, and this is one reason why I think it's really significant that Gandalf leaves Theoden, and that at the moment of doubt, right before the dawn, in the Battle of, of Helm's Deep, Theoden is left in the dark alone to make a choice, and he makes the choice. I will not be taken like a badger in a trap, and he's going to ride out um, and rides to victory. Um, and he does that before Gandalf shows up again. Um, here... There's that, that, that choice, the emphasis being placed on Theoden's own choosing, um, that he's going to ride off into battle, um, that he is going to defy this sense of despair, that he's going to persevere despite the despair. Look, we're just... That, that Minas Tirith is already burning, right? It's, uh, it's too late. Too late is worse than never. Remember, this, that's a reference to earlier on in the chapter. 
um, when Aemir was saying that you know what you know late is better than never, right? Um, and you know Mary's sudden doubt, no, no, too late is worse than never. Um, uh, Noam Weiss asks, isn't it ironic that the breaking of the gate is what prompts Theoden into action? In a sense, yeah, Noam, you could say, like, well, that's, well, oh, that's torn it, right? Now they've broken down the gate, so they're already in Minas Tirith. So now, even if we charge in, what are we going to do? They're already getting into the city, right? Um, I mean, in, in a sense, you could say, Noam, you'd think that would be, like, twice as crushing, right? I mean, we, we missed it by that much. If they were still outside the walls, we could sweep in and take them out. But if they've gotten in the walls now, what are we going to do? Restorm the walls of Minas Tirith? So you'd think, yeah, if anything, the, the destruction of the gates would say, okay, now it's officially too late, right? But that's not the effect it has on Theoden. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, as Noam points out, it's a bad thing that turns into a good thing. Um, yeah, and again, that's primarily because of Theoden's response, um, of his, uh, of his, cho of the choice that he makes here. He could do this. He could slink away to hide in the hills. Um, one could even say that it would be prudent. That it's rash to throw their lives away, to just charge onto the field where they are hideously outnumbered and where apparently their allies are already defeated. Um, this seems like a really bad idea in almost every way. Notice, by the way, um, Pippin has just said in the previous passage that I quoted um, that Denethor is fey and dangerous. Fey is, of course, a fun word. Um, the word fey means moving towards death deliberately, um, seeking death. Um, if you were in a fey mood, uh, I remember it was a long time before I really found out what that word meant, um, and the, the use of it when Frodo is described as fey, running into the paths of Kirathungal after they escape from, from Shelob's lair. Um, he's described, you, know, uh, you know, Sam is thinking his master's in a fey mood. Um, and uh, I, I, was always, I was always really intrigued by that uh, phrase, and I began, I remember like, when I was in high school, trying to work the word fey into conversation, um, which I never really managed to do appropriately, um, which is, I think, really all for the best, all things considered. But my rambling point here is Theoden is fey too, and the word is used of him as he charges into the battlefield alone. I mean, he outpaces everybody. Um, and this is something, again, that is... Um, as, as, and I will give props, having criticized at various points and prepared to criticize again before this class is over, uh, the film versions of The Lord of the Rings. The Charge of the Rohirrim... I love The Charge of the Rohirrim in, uh, in the films. I thought that was one of the things they did most right of any of the scenes that they depicted, um, I could forgive them much for the way that they handled the Charge of the Rohirrim in the film. I really liked it. But one thing they don't do, you'll notice, is, Theoden, is, is Theoden's fey charge. Um, he is, in the book, way out in front of the others and on, as, as if he is seeking death. He charges alone into the ranks of the Haradrim. Not just at the spearhead. It's not just that he's the first man over the wall. He's way out in front of everybody else. Um, so, 
we've got two Fey lords here in the battle. Uh, it's a good thing with Theoden and a bad thing with Denethor, right? It's a little tricky. We'll come back to this with <clears throat> Theoden a little bit later on. Um, but what we have here in his choice, uh, this is not choosing hope over despair in any simple sense. That is not hope in the sense of, I believe that good things are going to happen, right? I think that things are going to turn out well. He doesn't think things are going to turn out well. He thinks he's going to die. And he thinks that there's a very good chance that they're all going to die. But he does it anyway. Um, and that's so that, that, that and that's very different from responding in hope. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Andrew, you're certainly right. Uh, you know, the contrast between Theoden and Denethor couldn't be more um, extreme in the way that their fae What's the is there a noun form? Fae-ness? I I can't even think of what a noun form would be. Um, uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> Sarah King suggests Feanor. Uh, no, 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 totally different kind. Though Feanor does get Fey at one point, uh, interestingly. Feinity, suggests Sean. Um, possibly. No, uh, Carissa and uh, Sharon Powell both mentioned this. I don't think... is not directly connected with Fey, as in uh, connected with fairy. Um those are different words, um, and I am not sure. I mean, I have to go back and look at the etymologies, but I'm not really sure that they're much connected with each other at all. Um, certainly, Tolkien differentiated them um, by the. I mean, by, uh, Fay in the fairy sense uh, is he always spells F A Y. Um, so yeah, no, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and Robert is saying they are etymologically unrelated, as I was pretty sure they were. Um, but, um, yeah. But anyway, I, I, to, to get back to the point that Andrew was making, um, Denethor cowers in the back and withdraws from everything uh, from the battle. Th uh, you know, Theoden, of course, is leading from the front and charging out, um, you know, in, in a sense almost taking the, the, the brunt upon himself. Um, they couldn't be more... You know, the, the, the way that their feyness is manifested could not possibly be... Um, more, more opposite. Okay, Carissa confirms, uh, and Jean that it's famous is correct. Okay, we'll use famous. Um, okay, there we go. Sarah Lagarde has also confirmed that. All right, good. In, in a way, of course, I'm always disappointed. I prefer to make up my own noun form, but uh, it's okay. We can live with it. Anyway, two other quick things I wanted to point out here on this slide. <laughs> Oh, I won't even tell you how many slides I actually have tonight because you'd laugh at me because uh, uh, we're over half an hour in and I'm only on number two. But I'll carry on anyway. Um, the second thing I wanted to point out is about uh, the change of the wind. We'll talk about this more uh, a little bit later, but I just wanted to mention it. Um, the pivotal moment here in Mary's perception is the change in the wind. Um, the change in the wind, this is the third time the change in the wind has been referred to, right? Han Be Han, um, and I have a really hard time saying his name. I believe that the GH at the beginning of his, um, at the beginning of his name 
the both parts of his name um, are is supposed to be that voiced consonant guttural consonant that I can't that I have a really hard time pronouncing without doing myself an injury. Han, 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 It's uh, uh, it's tough for me. Anyway, but anyhow, um, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Jana, I know it's easier for you. Uh, I guess the Dutch have an advantage over us in that way. I always like like that consonant. But anyway, um, uh, so the anyway. Han Han is the first one to uh, to to note it, to draw attention to it, and then Weedfara. We're going to come back to Weedfara, um, but now Mary finally senses it for himself. Wind was in his face, light was glimmering. Far, far away in the south, the clouds could be dimly seen as remote gray shapes, rolling up, drifting. Morning lay beyond them. But at that same moment, there was a flash. It's that. Con- it's that. It's that contrast. Uh, he sees the wind is rolling up the clouds. The doom, is, the gloom is departing. That sense of doom that he feels uh, begins to disperse at that moment. Um, light begins to glimmer, and in that light, or at the moment of that perception, they see uh, the peril of the gates. Again, we'll come back to the uh, the wind. I just wanted to. Uh, uh, I just wanted to to draw attention to that for later discussion. The last thing I want to talk about here is Theoden's verse, of course. Arise, arise, riders of Theoden! Fell deeds awake, fire and slaughter! Spear shall be shaken, shield be splintered! A sword day, a red day, ere the sun rises! Ride now, ride now, ride to Gondor! This, of course, is alliterative verse. This is one of several examples, several examples we'll look at today, I hope, um, of alliterative verse that we get. This is, this is you know, this is Rohiric poetry, uh, which is, uh, operates startlingly like Anglo-Saxon poetry in its metrical form. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, um, uh, oh, sorry, Arthur asks a quick question. Wind was in his face. Which direction was he facing? West? No, south. He's facing south. The wind is coming from the south. Um, and uh, Andrew was pointing that out earlier, too, that it seems almost ironic that it's the south wind and not a west wind, uh, which one might think would be more symbolically appropriate. Um, but, of course, it's a south wind that's needed under the circumstances, as, of course, we see uh, later on. Um, but of course, Andrew, uh, the wind might be coming from the south, but I get the distinct impression that it originated in the west, if you know what I mean. Um, but anyway, we'll come to that. We'll come to that. Um, the poem again, alliterative verse. So um, this is not these poems that the that the Rohirrim uh, say, and again, most of the verse that we get in this section um, is alliterative verse, and it's not meant to be scanned. It's uh, as as other uh, poems that you might be more familiar with are um, it's not a it's not a syllabic meter that is it doesn't have the you know uh, the same number of syllables per line and uh, you know alternating beats the way that we get in regular uh, uh, syllabic poetry um, here it goes by means of alliteration um, there are four major beats per line um, and at least two of them and sometimes three alliterate on the same initial consonant. 
Um, and the line is usually divided into two halves, arise, arise, riders of Theoden. Um, it's, the, it's the R that gets the stress there. Arise, arise, riders of Theoden. So it's the R that's alliterating in that first line. Fell deeds awake, fire and slaughter. So you get the alliteration on F in the first beat and in the third beat, the first beat of the second half of that line. Um, so anyway, so those, the, the, the lines work very well um, in the alliterative mode. Um, but that's why you'll notice um, uh, Erica Smith had emailed me earlier to ask about the poem, which I hope to get to part of that later on today. Um, but um, but it, just in case we don't, I'll mention it. I'll answer your question now, Erica. Um, the, uh, um, the, the Mounds of Munberg song with which the Battle of Pelennar Fields chapter ends um, is also an alliterative uh, piece of alliterative verse. So if you can't quite get the meter of it, that's why. It's not in a regular meter. Uh, it's not iambic pentameter or something like that. It's alliterative verse. Um, so the rhythm is different um, than it would be um, in, uh, in, in poetry like that. Okay. Um, <laughs> Noam says, it's nice how people can just make up poetry on the spot as needed. Yeah, well, you know, great heroic people can do that. Um, don't forget... No, you know, and this is one thing which is sort of an interesting, um, a whole interesting angle on this text, you know, that we are invited, Tolkien invites us to look at this, not as a sort of a spontaneous record by people who are there, um, but as a legend that has been handed down to us over time. Um, and so, you know, one could ask the question, you know, before the Battle of Pelennor Field, did Theoden actually say those words exactly? Or did the poet who was telling the story later on compose those lines in order to try to convey, you know, what Theoden said and what that moment meant and, and, and you know, to sort of encapsulate and crystallize that moment of leadership and that choice by Theoden? Um, I, it is my sense, and it's been the... Um, and it's been the 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 sense of 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 others that that kind of thing doesn't it doesn't take away from the uh, you know from the beauty of this or from the power of it, as Ed points out, um, the final poem, the Mounds of Moonberg uh, poem, certainly is added much later. It's explicitly added much later, right? This is not something that's in the moment. In fact, there are a number of times uh, in that chapter when we're not in the moment. Um, so we're kind of invited to think about it that way. So, you know, Theoden's uh, 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 poem here, Aemir's poem later on, is this, you know, did they actually compose these on the spot? You know, I, I, I don't think that that's really an answerable question. Um, but, um, but, yeah, Elizabeth, I agree that the poem certainly works um, since it does, you know, I... I Elizabeth uh, Paladino is pointing out that um, you know it, it seems like at least to be at least based on an existing battle cry, and so it doesn't seem uh, unlikely that he might have come out with something like that. I agree. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, um, and yeah, Chris, I want to get to Snowman's epitaph. I hope later on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Noam, if, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing your name correctly, by the way, but um, remember if we, if and when we do get to, to um, 
Snowmanes how uh, ask me that again what you just asked because <laughs> I'd like to talk about it but I'd like to talk about it then um, uh, yeah yeah um, okay All right, I'm going to say one or two more things about the poem. Um, notice what Phaedon is saying in this poem. Arise, he says. Why? Why should we arise, Phaedon? Because fell deeds awake, fire and slaughter. Fell deeds awake is not referring to what they do or are about to do, but what their enemies are doing. Right, um, the fell deeds are the attack of and burning of Minas Tirith. Those deeds are awaking the fire and slaughter that that they're looking at right now is awaking. Um, we need to respond to that. Spear shall be shaken, shield be splintered. The use of the passive voice in that line is really fascinating. Who 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 will shake spears and who who's going to splinter shields exactly? Um, them, yes, their enemies. Yes. Um, in fact, it doesn't seem to be about that. It's not, in a sense, a rallying cry to do anything. You'd think that was, what, you know, arise, arise, riders of Thanos. It starts in the imperative mood. You'd think we'd continue in the, in the imperative mood. Not only do we not continue in the imperative mood, we don't even continue in the active voice. Right? I mean, it's, it, it gets not only indicative, but passive, which you wouldn't expect in a call to battle. Uh, like, FYI, sh sh spears are going to be shaken. That will happen. Shields are going to be splintered. A sword day, a red day, ere the sun rises. A sword day, a red day. A sort of two really quite abstract metaphorical ways to describe what lies before them. Right? Today will be a sword day. That's pretty evocative. Today will be a red day. Ooh, that's actually better. Um, that's even more sort of inclusive and, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and abstract. I like that. Um, and that's going to be true ere the sun rises. I love the um, multivalence of ere the sun rises, that the different levels on which you can take that. Ere the sun rises, literally, like, well, it's still not quite dawn, and we're, we're going to be busy even before the sun's fully up, is, of course, one way to, uh, to understand that. Um, but, of course, you can also understand that in the larger, more emblematic sense. The sun is going to rise, right? Day is going, day will indeed come again. Um, but before that happens, um, it's going to be a, a sword day, a red day. And then you have uh, the, not the repetition, the conclusion, arise, arise, ride now, ride now. You'll notice the difference uh, in the sound of those. We had the arise, arise, um, and now we get ride now, ride now, alliterating on the same letter, but with a very different rhythm. Um, uh, uh, you know, riders of Theoden now ride to Gondor. Um, anyway, I could say a lot more, but I will stop. Um, because we need to go on. But, um, yeah, yeah, good. Yes, Aure and Tulava, exactly. Um, okay, I am so on the move. Number three, um, let's look at two different forms. We, 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 we looked at two different kinds of feyness. Now let's look at two different kinds of despair. Do not weep, Lord, he stammered. Perhaps he will get well. 
Have you asked Gandalf? Mrs. Pippin, of course. Comfort me not with wizards, said Denethor. The fool's hope has failed. The enemy has found it, and now his power waxes. He sees our very thoughts, and all we do is ruinous. I sent my son forth unthanked, unblessed, out into needless peril, and here he lies with poison in his veins. Nay, nay, whatever may now betide in war, my line too is ending. Even the house of the stewards has failed. Mean folk shall rule the last remnant of the kings of men, lurking in the hills until all are hounded out. Men came to the door crying for the lord of the city. Nay, I will not come down, he said. I must stay beside my son. He might still speak before the end, but that is near. Follow whom you will, even the grey fool, though his hope has failed. Here I stay. Okay. Chris says he loves the expression, comfort me not with wizards. Um, yeah, I, I, it kind of seems like that should be on a really obscure t-shirt, doesn't it? I, I could just, for some reason, that seems like a t-shirt slogan to me. It would be very funny. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, Brandon points out, Brandon Lovesey points out that that line about mean folk is ironic because the last remnant of the King of Men is hiding in the hills uh, as the rangers. And, oh, indeed, of course, he's leading uh, a party of, of of some of those mean folk. Um, that, that is, the of, of, of the Oathbreakers uh, down, the mountain folk. Um, so, yeah, now there are a couple levels of irony there, Brandon, I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly, Diego. Diego's pointing out how, you know, mean means, uh, you know, low. Think back to Faramir and his, uh, in the Two Towers and his, you know, his high men and the middle men and all that. It's mean in that sense, as Diego points out, that, uh, um, that Denethor is speaking here. Um, Mm, Luke asks a good question. Luke says, um, can we take a moment to address though his hope has failed? Michael Drought says that this means that Denethor has seen Frodo's male shirt in the Palantir. Is that your interpretation? No, it's not really. Um, it's not that I think that that's impossible. Um, Andrew was just asking, as I was saying that, he was just asking, what has the enemy found? What has Denethor seen? Well, Denethor knows about the ring, at least he's figured that out, and they've already had that exchange, um, that is, Denethor and Gandalf have. Um, what has Denethor seen? I don't think that Denethor has seen anything concrete, and there are two reasons for this. One, um, we're told later on that the two Palantiri that we see in action or hear about being used, um, the Orthanc one and the Minas Tirith one, in the hands of Saruman and Denethor respectively, are operating differently. In a sense, Denethor shows that he's actually um, seems to have more mental steel than, than Saruman has, that he's less susceptible than Saruman is. Um, Saruman gets drawn in. Um, he looks, he casts his eyes upon Barad-dûr and is there trapped. And he just, and the, the Orthanc stone is now just basically serves as a, as a two-way radio between Orthanc and Barad-dûr that, um, again, Gandalf suggests that Saruman can now uh, barely use it for anything else. Um, Denethor, 
Not so. Denethor is still using it. He he's seen what's happened with Thaddin. He's seen the corsairs coming up the river, or what he thinks are the corsairs coming up the river. Uh, he sees um, uh, he sees the armies mustering in the east. Um, he is being manipulated by Sauron, um, but it is does not seem to be as direct. Again. I don't see, based on what Gandalf says, Gandalf at least does not seem to be under the impression that when Denethor looks into the Palantir, he is, like Saruman, like looking directly into, uh, you know, Saur- where, whatever room of his, of, of the Black Tower Sauron keeps the Palantir in. Uh, anyway, um, he's, you know, Saruman is always looking directly there and, 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 and Sauron appears... Uh, in bodily form before the Palantir and speaks to him as he did to Pippin. That's I don't see, Gandalf does not seem to believe that that's what happened with Denethor. That Denethor is using the Palantir under his own will, believes that he is entirely using it under his own will. That that he is seeing all that there is to see. It is, and we'll come back to this next time when we look at these passages more. Um, but I believe that he is concluding this based on what he's seen. Um, he says the fool's hope has failed, the enemy has found it, and now his power waxes. I believe that he's saying that because he sees the enemy's power waxing. Remember, Gandalf um, and Denethor are both seeing the same thing, which is all of a sudden the enemy is moving now. He has decided, you know, the, 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 the darkness has come, the, the armies are attacking. Uh, Gand- remember Gandalf's first thought when Faramir tells him, like, the time, the time, he wants, because he's thinking, you know, this could be awful bad, right? If, in fact, uh, this attack came right after Frodo got to Minas Morgul, there's a good chance that it's because the enemy now has gotten the ring back from Frodo and now we're all hosed. That, that, that's Gandalf's first thought. But he says, you know, I think there's actually some hope in it. I think it seems like those two things were not the same. You know that when he had the opportunity to get the ring, and when um, he sent out his attack, were not in fact the same, and that's what leads Gandalf through his own chain of reasoning to conclude what actually happened. Aragorn, ah, Aragorn probably showed himself. That's what stirred. Um, that's what stirred Sauron to move. Denethor doesn't have that piece of the puzzle for one thing. Doesn't come to that conclusion. He seems to be looking at similar data to what Gandalf is looking at. And just drawing a different conclusion. Okay, he's his power is waxing. He's on the move now. Um, he's found it, and all that we do is ruinous. It's over. The fool's hope, Gandalf's hope, has failed. That's how I understand. You know, Luke. That's how I understand that passage. Um, uh, but anyway. Um, yeah, Roberts uh, suggests that perhaps Denethor's authority uh, to use it as the steward uh, may perhaps be making a difference. That that you know, I, again, Ar- you know, Robert, I assume you're thinking of Aragorn's comment about having both the right and the strength to use it. The right could not be doubted, and the strength was enough, barely. Um, uh, Saruman's right to look in the Palantir is much more tenuous. You could say that he has a right because he is in fact appointed uh, to be the the warden of that tower by the steward, um, by Steward Baron way back, um, uh, like a thousand years before. But um, 
still it's a little dubious that that gives him the right to use the Palantir. Um, Denethor's right is not perfect. Um, he is the lord of the city, but he's not the king. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, but but Robert, I do think it's an interesting point. Um, Elizabeth says uh, uh, she always assumed that Denethor saw the ships approaching. I, 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 he does see the ships approaching. He mentions it. Um, so yeah, I do think that that's one of the things that he sees. But again, that by itself, um, you know, the Corsairs of Umbar are attacking from the south does not necessarily mean the enemy has recovered the One Ring. Um, I, that, I think, is... The Corsairs attacking from the south are, are one of the pieces that he's seeing. But, I, I th again, I think it's... My, my reading is that it's simply... Um, is that it's simply the two of the... Uh, you know, him, the two of them, Gandalf and Denethor, basically coming to different conclusions about the same thing. Again, don't forget, Gandalf had, you know, for a second, had that same reaction. <gasps> does this mean... Wait, shoot. <laughs> Has Sauron got the ring? Um, that he has that thought. Denethor seems to have that thought too, um, uh, which is very understandable. Um, Luke says, "Could I say that Saruman had the strength but not the right, and Denethor had the right but not the strength, and Aragorn had both?" I'm not sure, Luke, mostly because it seems like Denethor actually has more strength than Saruman. Now, it might not be a question of strength. Um, I mean, I'm always tempted to see it that way, but um, one of you, who was it, just said this really well. Lynn, it was Lynn Munro, um, said, Saruman has already sunken into evil. Denethor has merely sunken into despair. That seems to me right. Um, Denethor's motivation to use it is compromised, but not as compromised as, Sar as Saruman's is. Um, so, uh, so I think that there's more there for both of them than just the question of the right and the strength. Um, but, um, but anyway, that's not what I want to talk about about this passage. What I really wanted to talk about about this passage is as an example of despair. And we'll look at his despair more, Denethor's despair more, of course, when we do Chapter 7. But um, I want to look at his reaction. Right? Look at the choice that he makes. Being confronted by despair, believing they have no hope, believing all we do is ruinous. Um, how does he respond? And how he responds is completely turning inward, right? Nay, I will not come down. I must stay beside my son. He might still speak before the end. Um, I don't care what's going on in the city. I'm going to abandon everybody else. I'm going to abdicate my own position and my own responsibility, and I'm going to just focus on my own private grief. Remember, there's a real symmetry here, um, which we need to keep in mind, because I think it's emphasized pretty strongly in the text. That is his grief over Boromir that we see at the beginning, and his grief over Faramir here at the end. Um, Gandalf says that he can use even his grief as a cloak. Right? His grief is something that he is still ultimately he's even willing to, to, to sort of play the grief card in his like struggle with Gandalf in order to attain his own ends, but which he believes to be, uh, through his own pride, the best for his city as well. Um, here, he's not doing that now. You know, here he is completely turning away from all of that um, and focused only on his private grief. Um, 
to stay by Faramir, not because he thinks he can do him any good or help him or anything, but just so that he might still speak before the end, when he's really thinking not just of his own, of his grief over Faramir's apparently imminent death, but of his own remorse for his own actions. I sent my son forth, unthanked, unblessed, out into needless peril. Why is he hoping that he might still speak before the end so that Faramir can forgive him, so that he might get a chance to undo what he did? That seems to be what he is primarily focused on. Um, again, it's not certainly not a question of benefiting Faramir, as his subsequent actions uh, make relatively clear. Um, yeah, as Chuck points out, he's looking for absolution, I agree, that he wants to be forgiven by Faramir. Um, that does seem to be what he's after. Now we have despair. Uh, another reaction to despair. The Rohirrim indeed had no need of news or alarm. All too well they could see for themselves the black sails. For Eomir was now scarcely a mile from the Harland, and a great press of his first foes was between him and the haven there, while new foes came swirling behind, cutting him off from the prince. Now he looked to the river, and hope died in his heart. And the wind that he had now blessed he... And the wind that he had blessed he now called accursed. But the hosts of Mordor were enheartened, and filled with a new lust and fury they came yelling to the onset. Stern now was Aemir's mood, and his mind clear again. He let blow the horns to rally all men to his banner that could come thither, for he thought to make a great shield wall at the last, and stand and fight there on foot till all fell, and do deeds of song on the fields of Pelennor, though no man should be left in the west to remember the last king of the mark. So he rode to a green hillock, and there set his banner, and the white horse ran rippling in the wind. Out of doubt, out of dark, to the days rising, I came singing in the sun, sword unsheathing. To hope's end I rode, and to hearts breaking. Now for wrath, now for ruin, and a red nightfall. These staves he spoke, yet he laughed as he said them. For once more lust of battle was on him, and he was still unscathed, and he was young, and he was king, the lord of a fell people. And lo, even as he laughed at despair, he looked out again on the black ships, and he lifted up his sword to defy them. Compare and contrast with Denethor. What do you see? What really strikes you? What do you notice? Um, Arthur says, he's Hurin. Um, yes, almost. Um, <laughs> Arthur says Denethor sounds more like Turin. Oh, uh, maybe. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, both Luke and uh, Brandon were both pointing out that uh, Amir certainly seems fey in this moment. Um, yes. Um, Keep making your comments. I want to point out. I want to talk about his song for a little bit. Um, I love the parallelism emphasized, of course, by the alliteration: "Out of doubt, out of dark, to the days rising." Um, I came singing in the sun, sword unsheathing. Um, I love the way. One of the things that I really like about alliterative poetry is thinking about the way that different, seeing how poets use the alliteration to tie different words and ideas together. Um, I mean, the way that it sounds, those words get, you know, just as, just as the, the, the words that are rhymed at the end of a rhyming couplet 
um, you know, we, we associate them together. We, you know, those words are linked together by the rhyme. So the words within the line get linked by the alliteration um, in alliterative poetry. And I love the patterns here. Out of doubt, dark, days rising, right? Out of doubt, out of dark, to the days rising, singing in the sun, sword unsheathing. Um, the first two lines are lines of glory, right? We came from doubt. We came from dark and the day rose, right? We were singing in the sun, unsheathing our swords. To hope's end I rode and to heart's breaking. The parallel there, hope's end and heart's breaking. Um, that's where you can, so the, the, the horrible, the kind of bitter irony there. We came out of doubt and out of dark into the light, singing in the sun to hope's end and to hearts breaking. That's despair, isn't it? Now for wrath. Now for ruin and a red nightfall. So what do you guys think? Um, Arthur points out that um, uh, no, sorry, Rachel. Rachel Barton points out, Amir laughs at despair, and Denethor wallows in it. I agree. Um, he looked out again on the black ships, and he lifted up his sword to defy them. His the thing about those those lines, that poem, could be incredibly bitter. It could be utterly disillusioned. Right, those words could be the words of a completely embittered and disillusioned person. But he's laughing as he says them. And that, for me, really changes how we look at them, and certainly how we understand Aemir's own attitude. Now for wrath, now for ruin and a red nightfall, corresponding, of course, to the red day that Theoden had announced before. Um, a sword day, a red day, ere the sun rises. Well, now Amir is looking forward to a red nightfall of that red day. Um, Elizabeth says, Denethor's despair makes him passive. Amir is driven towards action. Um, yes, I agree. Um, Yeah. Um, Yana, I agree. You can say that he's fey, but Yana is pointing out, um, you know, this is not exactly the act of a fey person. He doesn't become suicidal. Um, he doesn't dash out and charge into the horde. Um, he keeps fighting and defying the enemy rather than bowing to them and disappearing um, uh, to the point of simple suicide. I agree, Yana. He is... Um, you know, remember Pippin's line, um, or rather Peregrine's line, perhaps I should say, um, uh, of um, his line about um, how, you know, they should at least be left upon their knees, right? The kind of defiance that Pippin was expressing in that line is, in small version, the kind of defiance that Aramir, that Aramir is expressing here. Um, he sees 
despair. He sees the hopelessness. He does not believe that they have any chance of survival. But doggone it, he's not going to give in. Um, he's not going to... Uh, he's not just going to allow it to happen. He is going to... Even though he believes that the most and best he can do is not going to be enough, by golly, he's going to do all that he can, and he is going to spend all that he has and all that he is uh, in defying the enemy uh, and in standing against them um, until every single one of them are cut down. That is completely opposite of Denethor's perspective, who is turning away from all of it um, and turning completely inward um, to himself. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, yeah, Brandon was pointing out the difference between the Red Day and the Red Nightfall for Amir uh, before I said it. Um, yes, good, good. Um, good, Noam says it really well. Amir is still thinking in a we context, while Denethor uh, thinks in a me context. That seems... Uh, um, that does seem that does seem right. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, as Andrew points out, it also sets up the you the you catastrophic moment that is to come. Yes, it does. Um, I mean, if um, if he had given up, you know, had he just thrown his life away. Here, um, the fact that they stand as long as they do shows it, it gave the opportunity. And he wasn't thinking about you catastrophe. You know, he was not thinking. Even doesn't seem even in the back of his mind. He's thinking, you know, if we just hold on, there's a chance. Maybe something will happen. Maybe something good will happen. Who knows, right? If we give up, we'll definitely f fail and fall. But maybe if we stand, maybe we'll still be delivered. That doesn't seem to be in his head. It's true. Um, that's in fact where things go, um, but um, but that doesn't seem to be uh, that doesn't seem to be what he's uh, what he's thinking. Um, yeah, um, yeah, Brandon. I, Brandon, I think that you're right to say. Um, Brandon says I wouldn't say that Theoden was looking towards certain death either. He foresaw that he would not return, but I'd say he has a similar attitude that Aemir has to fight to his last breath. Yeah, it is like he 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 does have the foreboding that this charge is going to be his last one. So when he's ahead of everybody else else and charging alone into the battle, it's not that he's throwing his life away. It's just that he's making it count because uh, this is his uh, this is his last his last one. Gene uh, Sullivan, of course, is very right to call this an example of northern courage. This is a very uh, Norse Germanic heroic perspective that Aemir is voicing here. Um, uh, um, yeah, Rachel says this seems to be northern courage in a nutshell. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Gene says in Northern Courage, winning isn't really the point. Uh, no, it's not really the point. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to look at um, the conflict, conflict that we get between darkness and light. It's a not a very subtle motif in these chapters and is 
Uh, it doesn't take fantastic insight to notice the conflict between light and darkness uh, in these passage in these uh, chapters. But I wanted to look at a few passages. Um, and in doing this, by the way, I don't see myself as really changing the subject from what we've been talking about. I think that what we see in some of these more overt conflicts between light and darkness have everything to do with the choice that Theoden makes um, before he charges, the choice that Denethor makes when confronted with despair, the choice that, er that Aemir makes here. Um, I think that we're sort of just seeing a different version um, of in some ways a similar drama. With that, Baragon sprang away and ran off into the gloom. Ashamed of his terror, while Baragon of the Guard thought first of the captain whom he loved, Pippin got up and peered out. At that moment he caught a flash of white and silver coming from the north, like a small star down on the dusky fields. It moved with the speed of an arrow and grew as it came, converging swiftly with the flight of the four men towards the gate. It seemed to Pippin that a pale light was spread about it, and the heavy shadows gave way before it, and then as it drew near, he thought he heard, like an echo in the walls, a great voice calling. Gandalf, he, call, he cried. Gandalf! He always turns up when things are darkest. Go on! Go on, White Rider! Gandalf! Gandalf! He shouted wildly, like an onlooker at a great race, urging on a runner who is far beyond encouragement. But now the sun swooping... Sh I'll come in again. But now the dark swooping shadows were aware of the necro... Of the I almost said necromancer, boy, okay. But now the dark swooping shadows were aware of the newcomer. One wheeled towards him, but it seemed to Pippin that he raised his hand, and from it a shaft of white light stabbed upwards. The Nazgul gave a long wailing cry and swerved away, and with that the four others wavered, and then rising in swift spirals they passed away eastward vanishing into the, into the lowering cloud above, and down on the Pelennor it seemed for a while less dark." Okay, that was pretty awful reading, but um, what I want to point out here, one of the things I find really fascinating about this, this is a really interesting passage because it's one of the places, we get places where um, uh, Gandalf summons fire or lightning, or what seems to be lightning, um, but there are really comparatively few passages that we can point to to say, hey, look, Gandalf the wizard is doing magic here, um, and this is one of those passages. Notice, though, that there is some doubt about that. There is not doubt about whether or not he's doing something here, as he is clearly uh, combating the Nazgul directly on their own level. And thus the struggle is one that would be called magical by Sam, thinking back to his conversation with Galadriel. However, um, notice how the actual description of what occurs is left open for question at a couple points. Do you see what I mean by that? Um, notice uh, when Pippin, it seemed to Pippin that a pale light was spread about it and the heavy shadows gave way before it. Okay. Is Gandalf actually glowing? Is there, in fact, a visible nimbus of light around Gandalf that would appear to anybody looking on and which would presumably appear visible in photography were somebody there taking a picture of him? Is Gandalf actually shining? Or is this 
an insight on Pippin's part. We've seen that before, right? Sam has it, right? When he's looking at Frodo and he sees him as if in a different, you know, he has this kind of spiritual insight and he sees him in a different light, um, you know, as if he's shining with light. He sees, you know, him and Gollum in that sort of tableau and he has this kind of insight. Pippin had this experience. We looked at this last time um, when he's looking at Denethor and Gandalf and he sees um, sort of beyond the surface to to what um, is actually is actually there. Yeah, exactly, Dime. There's a whole lot of seeming going on here. Um, so, um, is it again? Is everybody who's looking seeing a pale light spreading around Gandalf, or is it just Pippin? Is it just seeming to Pippin again? Is Pippin granted as he was before a kind of insight here? Um, it seemed to Pippin that he raised his hand and from it a shaft of white light stabbed upwards. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, who? Yeah, Brandon is saying um, uh, it seemed to Pippin that he raised his hand. What else could it possibly have been? Like it seems that the, that, that seam right there um, would not appear to be pointing to any kind of doubt about what actually happened. Well, first of all, one thing, remember he's very far away, he just sees a little figure. Um, so, you know, emotion, is he raising up his hand? It looks like he did something, probably raising up his hand. I think it might even be kind of a nod to the uncertainty of being able to distinguish his gestures at that distance. But again, it seemed he raised his hand, and I think we are justified in applying parallel structure here. It seemed that he raised his hand and that from it a shaft of light, white light stabbed upwards. That is, I think the seemed applies to that too. Um, um, what is plainly true, what is obviously objectively visible to everybody, um, or I should say perceptible to everybody, is the Nazgul wailing and swerving away and the other four um, flying off, right? Gandalf definitely rides out there, and the Nazgul definitely go away. Um, is there actual light involved? Maybe. I'm not saying that there isn't. I'm not trying to debunk that. Um, but uh, but I think that that it's fascinating that we get those qualifications. Brandon asks, is he seeing Gandalf as he really is? Thinking, I, I mean, I assume, Brandon, you're quoting... Um, Gandalf, you know, you're thinking of Gandalf talking about Glorfindel back in the beginning of book two, right? Um, seeing him as he is on the other side, right? Kind of like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, um, yeah, and that's interesting. Uh, Andrew says, I wonder what the Nazgul would have seen. That's a great question, Andy. I, um, presumably what they see is different. Remember what Frodo saw when he put the ring on when the Nazgul were in front of him, right? And he's seeing them. And again, also when he sees Gorfindel on the bank. Um, there does seem to be different levels of this kind of perception. Um, and, um, you know, Pippin seems to be in a sense, um, uh, you know, sort of cluing into things uh, of that kind a little bit more. Again, we saw him having these moments. Uh, these sort of, you know, uh, uh, flashbulb moments. He was like, oh, wait, oh, now I see. Oh, okay, hang on, now I perceive what's going on here below the surface. Um, but, um, yeah, for a while, it, it seemed for a while less dark. It, 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 is it less dark? Um, or does it just seem less dark? Because his 
he's not being affected. Remember, Mary's heart beat slowly. Um, you know, again, is it is his vision dimmed, or 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 is it actually darker? Um, now that they've gone away, is he just released from that, and now it looks less dark, um, or has the light actually increased? Um, again, uh, it's. Um, um, we don't we don't know the um, we don't know exactly what's going on again we're, we're, and, and I think more importantly than that we don't know we we're not seem we don't seem to be meant to know um, the way that all of this is called all of that seeming is I think really fascinating um, it keeps this moment from being simply then Gandalf went out there and like cast his fourth level spell at the Nazgul and they took some damage and flew off right and you know I and of course I don't intend simple mockery at the expense of Dungeons and Dragons uh, for which I feel great affection uh, but but you see what I mean Tolkien clearly does not want us to be thinking of these things in, the, in those terms um, what we're getting here is a confrontation between light and darkness, between hope and despair, between good and evil, in what is to Pippin at that moment a visible um, in a, sort of a visible manifestation um, of that of that um, confrontation. <clears throat> yes, Morgan, I was thinking of that. Uh, Morgan says it echoes Theoden's it's not so dark. Uh, is it yeah, exactly. Um, Pippin's sort of like that when they when they fly off, Pippin's looking around and is like it's not so dark here, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and this seems to me to be an important, um, the significance of this episode, I think, or one, one of the primary significances of it, is to really draw our attention to the way that this confrontation works. The importance of standing against it. Again, I, I see what Aemir is doing on that green hillock as being quite similar to what Gandalf is doing here. Um, that when Aemir sings and laughs and lifts up his sword to defy the enemy, um, it seemed as if a shaft of... I mean, it's, it's, it's like what Gandalf is doing. Are, they different? Are there differences? Yes, absolutely. But I do think that it's an important... Uh, um, that it's an important parallel. Then we get other, even more personal confrontations. Then the black captain rose in his stirrups and cried aloud in a dreadful voice, speaking in some forgotten tongue words of power and terror to rend both heart and stone. Thrice he cried, thrice the great ram boomed, and suddenly upon the last stroke the gate of Gondor broke. As if stricken by some blasting spell, it burst asunder. There was a flash of searing lightning, and the doors tumbled in riven fragments to the ground. That battering ram packed a heck of a wallop, you have to admit. Um, notice how this gets completely materialized in the film. That is, it's just a huge, enormous ram with fire inside. Um, it is not here. It is not Grand which takes out the gates of Minas Tirith. It is the words spoken by the Black Captain, by the Witch King. The Witch King casts a spell. He says words. Um, uh, and he, he, 
he utters words of power and terror that rend both heart and stone and gates too apparently the ram itself is not presumably going to produce a flash of searing lightning or make the doors tumble in riven fragments to the ground that's not generally how battering rams work um, so here is the black captain here's the witch king putting forth his power and his authority in rode the lord of the Nazgul a great black shape against the fires beyond he loomed up grown to a vast menace of despair in rode the lord of the Nazgul under the archway that no enemy ever yet had passed and all fled before his face all save one there waiting silent and still in the space before the gate sat Gandalf upon Shadowfax Shadowfax who alone among the free horses of the earth endured the terror unmoving steadfast as a graven image in Rathdenan. You cannot enter here, said Gandalf, and the huge shadow halted. Go back to the abyss prepared for you. Go back. Fall into the nothingness that awaits you and your master. Go. The black rider flung back his hood, and behold, he had a kingly crown, and yet upon no head visible was it set. The red fires shone between it, and the mantled shoulders vast and dark. From a mouth unseen there came deadly laughter. Old fool, he said, old fool, this is my hour. Do you not know death when you see it? Die now and curse in vain. And with that he lifted high his sword and flames ran down the blade. Gandalf did not move. And in that very moment, away behind in some courtyard of the city, a cock crowed. Shrill and clear he crowed, wrecking nothing of wizardry or war, welcoming only the morning that in the sky far above the shadows of death was coming with the dawn. And as if in answer there came from far away another note, horns, 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 in the dark Mindalaran sides they dimly echoed, great horns of the north wildly blowing. Rohan had come at last. Okay, hang on, I'm coming back there. All right. Um, okay. Sorry, I have to recover myself here a little bit. Um, Andrew saying, I love the repeating in road, the Lord of the Nazgul. Is that uh, part of the ballad uh, that's been adapted? Yeah, there are moments in here that sound like they are, that when, when the, the narration really elevates to a level that begins to sound, um, that begins to sound more poetic, that begins to sound like lines from a ballad, I agree. Um, and uh, it, so he certainly does give it that, um, give it that tone. Um, <laughs> Mark Mark Shenham says that if you understood rooster language, uh, the rooster would be saying "day will come again," uh, <laughs> or even "day has come again." Um, yeah, yeah. The night is passing. <laughs> says the, maybe there's two roosters calling to each other. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Luke points out, and Luke, I was thinking the same thing. Again, we get the same thing. Behold! You couldn't see his face. <laughs> right? Uh, you know, he, he flung back his hood, which normally, like, the big reveal there is your face. Right? And behold! You couldn't see anything. Just like the behold, you can't see the, the standard, right? The flag. 
we were talking about last time. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's that's a that's, that's a that's a really it's a really fascinating moment. Look, I'm not quite sure what to do with that. Um, I mean, the, the, certainly the two passages function very differently. Um, here, what we're beholding is his very nothingness, right? His very emptiness. Um, that description of him, he had a kingly crown, and yet upon no head visible was it set. Um, the witch king has no face, right? He's got a crown but no head. He is empty. Um, he wields power. He has authority. He is both a king um, and uh, you know, he is both king and wizard, and yet he is empty. Um, do you not know death when you see it? Um, I love the irony of that line. Right, we'll come back to that in a second. Um, of course, he just means I'm going to kill you. Right, I am your death. Um, so, but of course, there's this dramatic irony there, right? It's like, oh gosh, did you just say that, Mr. Witch King? Right? Because um, if you really stop and think about what you just said there, that looks pretty bad for you, actually. Yes, he is looking at death. You are death. Um, you know, you, you, you uh, and again, this is what, uh, you know, this is exactly what um, Eowyn is going to be taunting him with. Yeah, Morgan says he has power but no self. Um, yes, yes. Um, Patrick says, I always saw it as showing that he was wearing his own ring and wielding its power so he is invisible. Um, y yes, yes, possibly so. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, Arthur says, do you not know death when you can't see it? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, um Patrick, that's possibly true, but again, it's, uh, I mean, he does seem, you know, we talk about his, his being nothing and having no face, um, but he seems to have sinews in his knee, uh, so Patrick, there is some reason to, uh, to support the idea, as you've said, that he has, in fact, a body that is merely rendered invisible, um, but, um, but again, clearly that moment emphasized by the behold, right? Behold, look, there's nothing there. Um, I mean, there's a crown, um, and there are red fires, which presumably are his eyes, between it and the mantled shoulders, vast and dark. Um, from a mouth unseen, there came a deadly laughter. Um, yeah, but the point is, you can't see him. He is emptiness. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, We have, of course, Gandalf defying him again. My little subtitle here obviously refers back to the Bridge of Casa Doom. We have Gandalf standing in the way again. Um, I love his threes, right? Go back to the abyss. Go back. Go. <laughs> right? He repeats go three times, getting a little bit more efficient each time, so in the end it's just go. Um, I love this is my hour. We have talked about that... We've talked about the we talked about that with Aragorn last time. You know how I love whenever anybody in uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, uses you know, say, you know when, when, whenever the narrator says in that hour, right? Um, it's always it's 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 always awesome when he says that. And we have the Witch King saying a similar thing. This is my hour. My hour has come. My time is now. Um, and uh, 
his use of that, this is an old sense uh, of the word. This is something that gets played on in earlier literature. Um, here I'm thinking, um, for instance, there's a famous passage in the New Testament that plays on this. There were two Greek words for time. Uh, one was chronos, um, and that refers to time as in the passing of hours, you know, like what time is it, you're asking. Um, what what is the chronos? What is you know? The, of course, the word we get chronometer and all that stuff from chronological. Um, the other word for time was kairos, and that word was different. You didn't use that word time in the sense of chronos, like how much time do we have left? Um, in English, they still used the word time in this more, more in that kind of kairos sense. Um, I, not so much anymore, but they would say things like at uh, childbirth or on a deathbed, they might say, you know, of a, of a mother in labor, her time is near, right? She's about to give birth. Or they might say to somebody on their deathbed, say of someone on their deathbed, it's almost his time, right? His time. Um, again, that's the sense, in, you know, that significant moment, not just any old moment in time, right? But like, his time, capital T, right? That significant moment, that portentous moment, that um, foreseen moment, because both of those things, birth and death, are highly anticipated. Um, and so it's, it's sort of the fulfillment of that anticipation in that sense. Um, um, I, when I say I refer to a New Testament passage. Jesus uses the words uh, sometimes in both senses close together. Um, uh, my time is not yet, but your time is always with you. My kairos is not yet, but your chronos is always with you. You know, it's like you're not thinking about things the way that I'm thinking about things. He, Jesus, says, I, I know my time, right? My time is not yet. Um, this is not yet going to be happening. Again, that's the sense in which we get um, you know, Arab. You know, but you know, so great was the was was the you know the the, the might and, and and majesty of Aragorn in that hour that, you know, this is his time. Theoden has a time here, right? The Witch King believes it's his time. Um, he thinks he knows how this is supposed to go. He has anticipated this. This is the moment of the fulfillment of his plans. He is the first enemy ever to ride into Minas Tirith. He is going to be the one who crushes Gondor at last. Um, this is my hour, he says. This is my time. And then his hour gets marked by a rooster crowing. Right? Like it does every day. Same time every day, right? So there's one piece of irony there. This is my hour. Actually, it's dawn like it is every day, right? Um, this ain't your hour, my friend. This is no, this hour actually isn't nearly as special as you think it is. There's I, I, on one level, I, I, that's that's what I always think when 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 the rooster crows. Um, but of course, the crowing of the rooster, I think, has a has a much greater significance. This scene, as powerful as it is, you could be argue, um, you could easily argue that. Um, 
this is like the most anticlimactic moment in all of the Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, here we have what we've been waiting for. Gandalf has even hinted at it, right? Against some I have not yet been measured, right? Uh, you know, when uh, Denethor is taunting him, uh, did you did you withdraw because you were overmatched? And Gandalf says, who can tell, right? Our trial has not yet come. There's been all kinds of buildup, right? Gandalf versus the Witch King, toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Here it is. We've been waiting for this for a long time. Who's going to prevail, the White Rider or the Black Rider? Oh, my goodness. And then they, you know, they exchange this really, they get off to a, a rousing start, right? Defying each other, confrontation in the gate of the city. I mean, this wonderfully, evocatively symbolic moment. And then a rooster crows, and he just turns around and walks away, and they never confront each other at all. It seems crushingly anticlimactic, um, if you think about it from that point of view. But that, I think, is really the wonderful point that Tolkien is making, and it's so unpredicted. I mean, so unpredictable. This looks like a setup for, you know... If this were simply an action film, this looks like the, the 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 cheesy final confrontation between the big good guy and the big bad guy that things have been building towards. But it doesn't happen. <clears throat> um, instead, what happens is an external reminder, right? Um, the crowing of the rooster is the rebuttal to the Witch King's proclamation that this is his hour. Um, this is my hour. This is the hour of despair. This is the hour of darkness. This is the hour when the darkness over, you know, overcomes your city uh, and, uh, and, and evil triumphs over you. And the rooster, which is not even paying attention <laughs> and has no idea of how significant the hour is to anybody else, all he knows is the sun is rising, right? Um, and there is a way in which the rooster here is very much like that star that Sam is going to see twinkling through the gloom in Mordor. A reminder that, you know, up above your little shadow thing, my friend, the sun's still rising, right? Um, uh, it's not just that day will come again. Day is come. It's day now, right? Um, that, in fact, is the hour that it means. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, well, we should look at his next date, which also doesn't go very well. Um, okay, okay. I miscalculated. That, the, that wasn't my hour. This, this is my hour, says the Witch King. Then out of the blackness in his mind, Mary's mind, of course, he thought that he heard Dernhelm speaking, yet now the voice seemed strange, recalling some other voice that he had known. Be gone, foul Dwimmer Lake, lord of Carrion, leave the dead in peace. A cold voice answered, Come not between the Nazgul and his prey, or he will not slay thee in thy turn. He will bear thee away to the houses of lamentation, beyond all darkness, where thy flesh shall be devoured, and thy shriveled mind be left naked to the lidless eye. That remarks... That, that, that's a ten on the creepiness scale, I have to say. A sword rang as it was drawn. Do what you will, but I will hinder it if I may. Hinder me, thou fool. 
No living man may hinder me. Then Mary heard of all sounds in that hour the strangest. It seemed that Dernhelm laughed, and the clear voice was like the ring of steel. But no living man am I. You look upon a woman. Eamon, Eowyn I am, Eamon's daughter. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone if you be not deathless, for living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. One of my favorite lines, by the way. I will smite you if you touch him. Yana asks, is Dwimmer Lake Anglo-Saxon and what does it mean? Dwimmer Lake is an awesome word. I absolutely agree. Four people ask that question at the same time. What the heck does Dwimmer Lake mean? An excellent question to which the answer is not quite clear. There are two parts of this word, Dwimmer, uh, which is an Anglo-Saxon word which means sorcery, magic in some sense, probably malignant. And lake is a suffix. Um, it's a noun suffix. It seems to be, it has nothing to do with lakes. Of course, I remember being a kid, like 10, 11 years old, reading this, and like Dwimmer Lake, and thinking of like a body of water and being deeply confused. I mean, the spelling, of course, discouraged me from thinking that, but I couldn't help it. I had no other, I had nothing else to go with, so that's what was in my head. Um, uh, um, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Luke is uh, saying that Shippy just addressed this. Yeah, I know that Shippy talks about this. Um, uh, there's a there, you know, there in there are several detailed studies here. Um, but um, but yeah, it's uh, right. Gene points out that Saruman is described as dwimmer crafty. Um, that's a very that's that's an almost perfectly Anglo-Saxon word. Um, Dwimmer crafty. Change the, the Y in crafty to an IG and the A, uh, you know, to an ash, you know, the AE put together. Uh, Dwimmer crafty and you have an exact, you, you have an Anglo-Saxon word there. Um, yes, yes. Um, anyway, it's a complicated, uh, it's, it's a complicated um, word that, uh, Dwimmer-like, that is. Um, but, um, but yeah, so she is basically by calling him this. She is she is identifying him as a sorceress thing. Um, but that word seems, if I'm understanding it properly, um, quite impersonal. Um, you know that he, she is he is a um, he's just a thing of sorcery. Um, she combines it with Lord of Carrion. Again, this is what I was coming back to before when I'm talking when the irony of his previous declaration, do you not know death when you see it? Eowyn seems to say, yeah, I do know death when I see it, and I'm looking at it right now. Um, leave the dead in peace. So she, you know, there's there's this sort of double um, double side, I think, to, you know, calling him Lord of Carrion um, in the sense that, like, you know, why are you, why are you coming after the dead? Are you know, are you some kind of vulture? Um, but also that you are also one of the dead. Um, you know, you dead thing, leave the dead in peace. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so um, his threat... Um, she identifies him with not just death, but the dead, Lord of Carrion. Um, 
he says, come not between the Nazgul and his prey, and if this makes you think of King Lear, I don't think you're wrong. Um, come not between the Nazgul and his prey, or he will not slay thee in thy turn. He will bear thee away to the houses of lamentation beyond all darkness, where thy flesh shall be devoured and thy shriveled mind be left naked to the lidless eye. In other words, come back to my place, is what he's saying. Um, uh, this, and I'm not exactly, I don't think that's what he means. Um, but again, this is... Um, um, Brandon, yes, he's referring to himself in the third person here. Um, all uh, wicked villains uh, uh, like to do that in dramatic moments. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, this reminds me um, of the song, The Incantation of the Barrel White, back in Fellowship of the Ring. Um, cold be hand and heart and bone and cold be... Uh, uh, and co Blanking on the noun, cold be seat under stone line. Shoot, forgetting the word. Um, uh, Nevermore to wake on stony bed, never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. Um, again, the Barrow White, in cursing them, <clears throat> seems to be, in part, describing his own existence. Um, <laughs> Carissa thinks <clears throat> I shall bear thee away to the houses of lamentation is possibly the worst pickup line ever um, I absolutely agree um, uh, yeah, yeah look of course he is talking about Sauron's place and not his own but again what he's describing here is essentially the hell of his own existence um, uh, you know where thy flesh shall be devoured yeah okay Mr. No Face right um, you know, thy shriveled mind be left naked to the littlest eye. Okay, Mr. Thrall of Sauron, um, you know, mastered by his will. Um, Colby, sleep under stone. Thank you, Alyssa. I knew you'd come through for me. Um, that was really going to bother me. And I was going to dash over to my Fellowship of the Ring as soon as I stopped the uh, session tonight if you hadn't saved me. Uh, and Colby, sleep under stone. Um, thank you. Um, again, that's that's... The Barrow White is describing himself. There's this sense that in which the, what the Barrow White is trying to do um, to, to, to Sam, to Mary, and Pippin, uh, is, presumably to Frodo too, is, is to assimilate them, is to make them like, like himself. The, 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 the darkness is hungering after the light um, you know, of, which it, you know, of which it has been robbed, which it can't attain. They smell the blood of living things, desiring it and hating it. Why? Because they don't any longer have blood of living things. It is what they are not. And so what do they do? They want to annex it. They want to make it like themselves. Um, they're going to take Frodo and stab him with a knife that turns him into a wraith under their dominion, right? Um, this is what he threatens Eowyn with. Um, I'm going to do the worst thing to you that I can possibly think of. I'm going to make you like me. Um, and that's essentially... Um, what it um, what it what it sort of seems to uh, um, boil down to. Um, Robert says, thinking about the third person, perhaps perhaps as if it's actually Sauron speaking directly through the Nazgul Lord. Um, 
That's interesting, Robert. I've never thought. I mean, that works if you think about it that way. Um, if you think about Sauron as the speaker of the quote, just sort of delivered through uh, through him, and and it's like you know this this just in, right? Um, he will bear thee away. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't think that that's actually what's happening here, um, but I do think that that's an interesting way of putting it. Or again, even just sort of thinking, why does the Nazgul speaking speak of himself in the third person? Um, I mean, I was flippant about that before. Um, he speaks about himself in the third person because he has no no I, no capital I. I'm using the pronoun here, though. Uh, of course, uh, since I'm already thinking about Shakespeare, I'm tempted to make lots of extravagant puns on the word I, uh, like Richard II, I know no I, for I must nothing be. But uh, but I won't. Um, anyway, he, he has no me. He has no I. Um, he, 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 he doesn't exist. He doesn't have independent uh, existence anymore. Um, when he says, this is my hour, he's fooling himself doubly. Not only because that hour, turns out, isn't his, but also because there's no me to have the hour anyway. Um, uh, and and that, I think, is, is sort of expressed. Um, yeah, Diego, he does use the pronoun. He uses it, this is my hour. He says, you know, hinder me. No living man may hinder me. It's not that he has no sense of himself in the first person. He does. But... But it's not true. It's a lie. Um, he uh, he there, he doesn't have. He's given up his me. That's the irony of seeking power through the rings of power. Um, you want to elevate yourself, and in the end, you end up a thrall. That's how it works, and this is how we see it working for him. Um, yeah, yeah, um, um. Yeah, good. Eowyn, of course, laughs. And here I I think of her laughter. It's not the same as Eomir's laughter. The the situations are not identical, um, of course, by any stretch. This is not her. She is not confronting the same despair. Um, she seems, it appears, to have a kind of a glimmer of the irony here. Um, you know, she's sort of, she's puncturing his... Uh, uh, his sort of posturing here, no living man may hinder me. And she's like, oh, that's ironic, right? That's comical right there. Um, because I am not, in fact, a living man, as it turns out. Um, now, a couple of you have asked about this prophecy. Does he know about this prophecy? I believe that he does know about this prophecy. I see no reason to think he doesn't know about this prophecy. We are led to believe in Appendix A that that prophecy was widely known um, that you know Glorfindel made it uh, to to Arnor, but that it was heard by others and that it was known. Um, so I <clears throat> do think that there's I don't see any reason to think that the Witch King doesn't know it, um, and that he is in fact uh, invoking it there. Um, okay. All right, we're now like fully, almost two hours in, and uh, all right, I will confess, I'm exactly halfway <laughs> through the through the passages I wanted to talk about. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Well. 
the solution is not to keep going until, uh, I mean, somewhere um, over there in, in, in Holland, the roosters are about ready to start crowing anyway, wrecking nothing uh, of uh, our class going on. So, um, <laughs> and, and, and I think, and I know Andy's here too. Um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't think that is the solution. Um, I would rather <clears throat> I would rather add sessions on the end than make you stick around for four-hour sessions. So I will stop you. This is a good place to stop, relatively speaking. Um, the, I will tell you the passages I wanted to go on to discuss more. Um, now is when I wanted to go back and talk about those. the wind is changing stuff, uh, and I want to look at the way that the light and the sunrise uh, on the, in, in the battle are dealt with, and of course looking at the catastrophic ending. Um, and then I was wanting to uh, turn for a minute to look at uh, at the battle as it's depicted, um, and some of the moments, like those moments we referred to earlier, in particular the way that Tolkien interrupts the flow of the battle um, to draw our attention to things which you sort of feel like a modern editor would have cut in a heartbeat. Can you just imagine a modern editor, somebody has come in, you know, like somebody has just came in last week and plopped the manuscript of the, of the Lord of the Rings down on some editor's desk. They're reading this chapter and they're like, you know, there's some really good stuff in here, I gotta tell you. But um, I think we should cut the business about the horse's tombstone. Really kind of distracts from the action there, I gotta tell you. Um, uh, that really, really, we should probably cut that, don't you think? Um, can't you see an editor say, can you see an editor not saying that in that moment? Um, so the question is, why? Why does, um, why does he, uh, um, why does he do that? What is the effect of doing that? How does that impact what? I, I don't know about you, but I know that my experience of reading this chapter is not one of distraction. I do not feel like those passages divert me from the action and, and that I lose the train of the battle and that it takes things away. I feel that they it very much um, amplifies the effect of the rest of the passages. How? Why? What is the impact of those passages? Why do we go there? Um, what is the consequence of Tolkien's having gone there in his narrative? I want to look at that a little bit. Um, but, um, okay, so I'll stop. We'll come back to the wind, we'll come back to the horse's tombstone, um, and look at a couple other points, I hope. And, um, and some of it I might end up saving for a bonus session, but we'll see. Anyway, do finish book five for next time because I'm gonna be wanting to talk about Denethor more um, and uh, some of the stuff in the Houses of the Healing. So um, we'll definitely we'll definitely get there some next time, but we'll talk about some of this stuff too. Thank you guys for your patience. Thank you for uh, uh, all of your, your observations and comments today, which have been great. Um, and I look forward to, uh, to class. Next week we are on Thursday again. Um, and if I remember the schedule correctly, um, we are getting uh, into one of our, 
yes, week three is one of our uh, have mercy upon the Europeans uh, and reward them for their uh, stalwart participation sessions. Uh, so next Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Um, so that will be in the uh, in the humane. <laughs> Yana's response is, "This is my hour." Yeah, Yana will be at your hour next week. Uh, so that'll be great. Uh, anyway. Uh, thanks, everybody, and I will see you guys next week. Bye.